This morning we are beginning a new study in the book of Daniel, and so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be here for a while, Lord willing, and so you want to get familiar with where Daniel is. Daniel, of course, is in the Old Testament, and it comes after the books we call the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Those are long books, and so they're pretty easy to find. Uh, And Daniel comes before the 12 shorter books that we call the minor prophets, Hosea and so on. So uh, in between those is where you're going to find the book of Daniel. And if you've got a a ribbon marker in your Bible or something like that, you might want to slide that in here, Daniel 1, and leave that there so that each week as we come back to Daniel, you'll be able to find uh, your place rather quickly. But as we begin uh, our study of the book of Daniel, uh, I want to uh, think about something that we just read from Revelation 21, because I think it illuminates something that's going on in Daniel. And and that is in Revelation 21 and verse 7, there's something that has been striking to me uh, ever since I first noticed noticed it years ago. And it was not really until thinking about the book of Daniel that uh, Revelation 21.7, or part of it anyway, uh, made sense to me. Um, Revelation 21.7 talks about those who will not enter the new creation. They will not have a share in the new heavens and the new earth. But instead they will be uh, condemned and consigned to the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And the first characteristic that John gives us of those who will not share in the new creation, but instead will share in the lake of fire, is that they are cowardly. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the first term that I would have expected John to use to describe the people who will not share in the new creation. Cowardly is not something that I think of as a big problem in the Bible, typically, right? Immorality, yes. Sexual immorality, lying, murder, those other things that John mentions, I expect all of those, right? Paul lists those things as works of the flesh all all over the place. Those things are condemned. But the cowardly, why does John say that the cowardly will not share in the new creation, will not dwell in the presence of God, isn't going to heaven about holiness. Well, yes, it is, right? The Bible says in in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we're not holy in and of ourselves, Right? So how can we be holy so that we can see the Lord? Well, we become holy when we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ because Christ is perfectly holy. And so when we become His and we trust in Him, now we become holy. So the Bible calls all Christians saints, which means holy ones, holy people. And we are to pursue holiness. Right? Jesus, Paul, all the apostles, they, they tell us to Pursue holiness, to to be like Christ who is perfectly holy, to turn from sin and resist temptation. We do have to be holy, but apparently we also have to be courageous because that's the opposite of being cowardly. 
If the cowardly are going to be in the lake of fire, then if we want to be in the new creation, we have to be courageous. And we have to be holy. So my question is, what does courage have to do with holiness? Why do we need both? We might think, isn't it enough for me to be holy even if I'm cowardly? The Apostle John in Revelation says, no, that's not enough. You have to be holy and courageous. Why? The reason why courage is necessary for holiness is because in a fallen world, you cannot be holy without being courageous. Because the world is seeking to pressure you and push you into a way of living that is unholy. And if you are going to be faithful to Jesus, if you are going to pursue holiness, if you are going to do what God says to do in His Word, it is going to take a certain measure of courage for you to do that. The book of Revelation was written to Christians who were suffering, who were or who were about to be persecuted. Some of them would likely lose their lives. And Jesus, through his apostle John, is calling upon them to conquer, to persevere, even if that means staying faithful to Jesus unto death. And to do that, you have to be courageous. And if you are not courageous, you are going to give in to the pressure from the world to deny Jesus in some way or another and conform to the world instead of conforming to Christ. And so John says in Revelation 21 that the cowardly will not share in the new creation because he knows the cowardly won't keep following Jesus when it gets hard. They won't have the courage to stand up when they are tempted, tried, pressured, persecuted. Now, I bring all of that up by way of introduction because oftentimes in the Bible, when you encounter something like this that doesn't seem to make sense or seems to come out of nowhere, you think, is that the only place in the Bible that that's talked about? Usually there is an entire iceberg under that little peak that you just haven't noticed before. And that's what I began to realize as I was thinking about the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel is about courage and holiness. Daniel and his friends are famous for standing up against the pressures of Babylon to deny the one true God. And they refuse to bow to that pressure. Why? Because they're not cowardly. Because they are courageous. And their courage comes from their conviction about who God is and about what God is going to do. See, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel have a lot in common, as I think we'll see as we go through this study. And the book of Daniel helps us understand much of what 
John reveals to us in the book of Revelation. And in particular, I want us to see this morning how uh, Daniel's courage makes possible Daniel's holiness and how that helps us understand what it means for us to be courageous as we follow Christ. So let's look together at Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read chapter 1 this morning. Let me start for us in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and eunuchs that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Now, the first verses of the book of Daniel are the kind of verses that we may be tempted at times to sort of skim over because it's got names we're not used to and dates we don't really know much about. But there is one historical fact being highlighted here at the the beginning of Daniel that we need to know in order to understand the rest of the book. If I was talking about Abraham Lincoln and you didn't know that he was president during the Civil War, you would misunderstand or completely miss a lot of what I was saying about Lincoln. Or if I was talking about Patrick Henry and you didn't realize that he was uh, speaking and writing at the time of the Revolutionary War, then you would probably totally misunderstand everything that Patrick Henry was trying to accomplish. In the same way, we have to know and understand that Daniel has been exiled from Israel and brought to Babylon. He's been taken from his homeland in Judah, which is where Jerusalem was, and he has been taken captive by the Babylonians and brought into the heart of the Babylonian Empire, and he will remain there for the rest of his days. So Daniel is living as an exile in a foreign land, in a country that is hostile toward his people, and that's where he's going to live out the rest of his life. He's a young man at this point. We are not given a specific age, but some suggest around 14 years old. He lives to be a very old man, and so he must have been fairly young uh, when they brought him to Babylon. And so... Dan, that's what the, these first verses are trying to tell us, is that Daniel and his friends are a part of this group who has been brought out of Israel into Babylon because Israel is under the judgment of God and is being exiled as a result of their sin. Now, it's significant right, that he uses here in verse 2 the word gave. When he describes the exile, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that is the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, it looked like Babylon was more powerful than Israel, and that's why, or than Judah, and that's why Judah was being taken into captivity, and that's why uh, Nebuchadnezzar was allowed to take some of these young men into his country, and why he was even allowed to take some of the holy vessels from the temple and take them back to his own land and put them in the temple of his God. Wasn't that because the gods of the Babylonians were stronger than the God of Israel? That's what a lot of people would have thought, but that was not true. As Daniel would have known, as any faithful reader of the Bible would have known, and as we are being told here in Daniel, this was not God's defeat by the gods of the Babylonians. This is God's judgment on his people for their sin. God is allowing this to happen because his people have not been faithful to him. That's why he says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. This was God handing him over in judgment because of their sin. And this story is told other places in the Bible as well. In 2 Kings 24, we read a little bit about this where it says, The Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, those were the Babylonians, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it. 
according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. So this exile is a judgment from God that God has brought upon his people. And as a part of this judgment, Nebuchadnezzar is collecting many of the best and brightest from Jerusalem and from Judah and is re-educating them to make them fit for service in the Babylonian court. In verse 3, it says, The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So these, again, best and brightest. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So he says, bring me the the brightest kids they've got, bring me the best people they've got, the ones who are from noble families, from the royal family, the ones who uh, would know what it means and how it works to to operate in a king's court and to be a part of my ministry, as it were, of the government ministry. And um, he says, bring those here. And I want them to be educated in all of our literature, in all of our ways. And he even assigns them a portion of his own food. In verse 5, they're to be given a daily portion of the king's food and the king's wine. And after a three-year period of being educated in the language and the ways of Babylon, then they are to stand before the king. Nebuchadnezzar is sort of culling the, the cream of the crop from Judah to use for his own purposes, right? That's what he's attempting to do here. And Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are among those who have been brought to Babylon, have been selected for this special training, this re-education program, as it were, and have been allotted a portion of the king's food, and they are going to be part of the king's training program. Now, from the outset, right, this looks like Babylon is in control, right? It looks like Babylon is stronger, more powerful, and that Daniel and his friends are going to be at the mercy of this mighty, terrible empire. But we're already being told here in Daniel that that's what, how it looks is not how it is, that God is in control, that God is the one governing all of these events. And what books like Daniel and Revelation do is they, they pull back the curtain for us to help us see what is really going on in the world when it looks like things are spinning out of control, when it looks like darkness has the upper hand, when it looks like evil is winning. Daniel, Revelation, books like these help us see behind the curtain to recognize that God is in control, that God is governing all things, and that God is going to use even these terrible things that seem to be happening for His own purposes, for our good, and for His glory. So we are going to see throughout the book of Daniel that though Daniel is just one Jew in the midst of this mighty Babylonian empire, 
that God is going to sustain him, strengthen him, equip him, empower him, and use him to stand for truth, to point to the truth of the one true God of Israel, and to uh, even point to God's ultimate victory over Babylon and all the hostile powers of the world to the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth through his son, Jesus, the Messiah. A lot is going to unfold in this book. But the first thing that happens here, the first act of courage on the part of Daniel happens in verse 8, where it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, we don't know why the king's food and wine would be defiling. Probably it's one of two things. On the one hand, it could have been that the king's food and wine didn't measure up to the Old Testament laws about what was clean, what was acceptable for Jews to eat. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that the king's uh, food and wine would have been offered in sacrifice to idols, and so Daniel didn't want to partake in something that had been offered in sacrifice to an idol because that would defile him. It's probably one of those two things, though the book doesn't spell out for us specifically which one it might be. But whatever it was, Daniel knew that for him to participate in eating this food and drinking this wine would defile him before God. And Daniel's got a choice to make. Daniel has no power. He has been taken from his home by force to come and live in this foreign country. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care what God says. He doesn't care what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thinks about his food or his ways. He's got no interest in Daniel's, um, you know, what he might would think of as Daniel's scruples or something. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care. And probably nobody else there would be expected to care. It takes courage for Daniel to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to participate in that because I know that that's wrong. And so what does he do? It says, he, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He asks, can we do this another way? Can I have something else? The chief eunuch is not really excited about Daniel's request because he knows if this doesn't go well, you know, his head might be on the line with the king. Uh, and, but the person that the chief eunuch puts in charge of Daniel, verse 11, Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, he, he said, okay, here's my idea. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed. So he says, can we just try it? Can we just try for 10 days, let me eat something different? Vegetables and water, while everybody else is eating what the king assigns. At the end of the 10 days, look, if we look sickly after that, we can go back to the king's food. Let's let us try. And God gave Daniel favor. Verse 9 says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So even here, Daniel is under the king's authority. He's under the authority of this 
chief eunuch and of this steward, but God is at work on Daniel's behalf, even in this foreign country, even under these hostile people. He gives Daniel favor with them, and Daniel is resolved to do what God wants him to do, and God paves the way for him, as it were, to be able to uh, refrain from defiling himself with the king's food. And notice not only how, what Daniel does, but also how he does it. This is something I, I hadn't noticed until I came across this in a, a commentary highlighting what's going on here. This writer says, uh, this expert on Daniel says, what Daniel had resolved in his heart was one thing. How he would handle the situation was another. He sought permission from the human being in charge not to defile himself. We learn from this that obeying God is only one side of the coin. For we are also responsible for how we obey God before others. Daniel's obedience toward God was balanced by a respect for authority. While we live in this world, we will often be in situations where we are placed under the authority of non-believers. God still expects us to honor them. Sometimes people seem to think that as long as they are following the command of God... It's okay if they're kind of a jerk about how they do it. But it's not okay. Yes, we need to obey God. Yes, we need to stand for truth. Yes, we need to resist temptation. But there's also a proper way to do that. Peter talks about having gentleness and respect. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Paul tells us to uh, honor those who are in authority over us. Right? And the people who are in authority when Paul wrote that were not friendly toward Christians. It's not just how we act in relation to God, but also how we act in relation to others that counts with God. Now, Daniel, I said, was courageous when he did this, but this, in one sense, seems like a rather small thing. I mean, we're, we're not in the lion's den yet. Uh, we're not dealing with the fiery furnace yet. We're just talking about what you eat. But oftentimes, the areas where we will be tasked with acting courageously will seem rather small. Many of us are never going to be asked to literally put our lives on the line for our faith in Christ. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world have to do that regularly. Many of us will not have to. But that doesn't mean following Christ here in our context does not take courage. Because it also takes courage to refuse to lie when your boss asks you to. It also takes courage to refuse to gossip when everybody you're standing with is talking bad about somebody. That's not easy to do either. It's a small act of courage, but it is an act of courage nonetheless. And it's impossible for us to be holy in those small situations unless we have courage. And it's not just courage in the way that maybe the, the pagans would think of courage, you know, like a Roman having the courage to die in battle or something. It's the courage that comes from knowing that God is in control and that ultimately he will vindicate everyone who puts their trust in him, even when they 
in doing so, stand against more powerful enemies who might put an end to to their life. Or, less severely, put an end to your popularity or your promotion or whatever. You have the courage to stand against those things because you know that God is ultimately in control. And that no one can stand against Him. So, uh, Daniel is courageous. But notice this also. When Daniel stands against uh, this imposition upon him to defile himself with the food, God gives him favor, Uh, the plan works, Uh, he's in, in better health than those who are eating the king's food, and so he's allowed to continue with this diet so that he doesn't defile himself with what the king eats. And then, verse 17 tells us God does something else for Daniel and his companions. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, Daniel's understanding of visions and dreams is going to be very significant for the rest of the book. Because Daniel, like Joseph, is able to interpret dreams for the king. But... Notice before he says that, he says that God gave learning and skill in all literature to these four young men, to Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Now, if we stop and think about what this is saying, this might surprise us as well. Because when Daniel was uh, forced into this situation, right, he resisted the temptation to defile himself with the king's food, but he in no way resisted the education that he was being asked to participate in there in Babylon. And what was he being taught in Babylon? Well, again, it's the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now, most of us don't really know what all that would involve, but again, here's an expert in Daniel explaining what they would have been learning. He says, while much of this literature would have been of a historical and legal nature, an extensive amount would have been religious, including omen texts, magic, sorcery, occultic practices, and the science of astrology. The Mosaic Law had banned the practice of such occultic techniques. To read and study this material was not forbidden. But Daniel and his friends would have needed a strong walk with God and a biblical mindset to retain the ability to think critically when engaged in this type of study. In other words, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are given by God the gift of pagan learning. In verse 17, it says God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. They were being educated according to the Babylonians' curriculum, which would not have been a biblical curriculum. It would have been a thoroughly pagan curriculum. And God gave them learning in all that literature, in all that curriculum, in all that Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to learn and understand. God gave them the gift of understanding all that. And Daniel, when he stood up against the things that he thought were wrong, he stood up against the king's food that would have defiled him, but he did not stand against 
the things that they wanted Daniel to learn. And not only that, but we see that when the king tests Daniel and his friends, they are at the top of his class, uh, so to speak, as others have put it. Right? And even he says in verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Not ten times better than the other people their age, ten times better than the people who were already working for the king. Now, why do I emphasize this? I emphasize this because, at times, Christians have felt compelled to resist or separate themselves from any kind of education that is not explicitly Christian. And there is a temptation, and we have talked about this before, I think, there is a temptation for us to be more holy than the Bible. There is a temptation for us to add rules beyond the rules that the Bible gives us. And that's never healthy. That's not good. Daniel knows there are certain things he's not supposed to do. He's not supposed to practice magic and sorcery and do many of the things that the Babylonians would have taught him about. But there's, as our author said earlier, as our expert said earlier, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't read about those things. Right? We read a story of um, apparent witchcraft right, related to Samuel in the Bible where the witch of Endor calls up the spirit of the prophet Samuel. That's a story in the Bible. We're allowed to read stories like that, but we, we don't do stuff like that. But the story is there to tell us what happened and to say... <laughs> Don't do that. Daniel was allowed to learn these things. In fact, God gave him the gift of learning in these things. Daniel was one of the brightest young men in the kingdom. And here's here's what I want to say about this. We ought to want our children to receive the best education that they can. We ought to want our kids to be the best and brightest. Don't you want the best judges and lawyers and novelists and historians and journalists and doctors and public servants? Don't you want the best of those people to be Christians? Well, they're not going to be if we cut them off from the best education that our culture has to offer. Daniel wouldn't have been allowed to stand and serve and minister in the king's court if he had refused to participate in the Babylonian education. If he couldn't speak the language, if he didn't know the culture, if he didn't understand the law. And this is true not just of Daniel, this is something we see all over the Bible. That God uses pagan learning for the good of his people. Stephen says in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, as he's about to be martyred, he says in, in Acts 7.22 that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And the wisdom of the Egyptians wasn't biblical, but Moses learned it. Paul, when he was preaching on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, quoted pagan poetry as a part of how he sought to reach and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Augustine, in his book on Christian teaching, where he's seeking to equip pastors, encourages them to plunder the Egyptians, meaning 
in your education. Take the best the pagans have to offer and use it for the glory of God. Just like the Israelites, when they left Egypt at the Exodus, took all the gold and silver and whatnot from the Egyptians, carried it out in the Exodus and used it to build the tabernacle. Philip Melanchthon, who was a reformer alongside of Martin Luther, lectured on Homer whose stories are full of pagan gods doing all kinds of crazy and sometimes immoral things, but are also full of wisdom and insight about what it means to be a human being. Christians are allowed and even encouraged to make use of the best of what the pagans have said, while rejecting, obviously, anything that is contrary to God's Word. What I'm saying is, teach your children the Scriptures first and foremost. Make sure they understand that this alone is God's Word, that the Bible alone is inerrant and perfect, that it alone is the ultimate standard of truth. And of course, there are some things you don't want your kids to learn, especially at a certain age, as they're too young, they don't need to be exposed to it. But don't be afraid of them to learn some things that aren't explicitly Christian. Equip them to learn in whatever field they're going to pursue, whatever career they're going to uh, devote themselves to, equip them through Scripture and through engaging non-Christian ideas. Equip them to discern truth from error when they're reading outside the Bible. Equip them to plunder the Egyptians. Equip them with the best education you can give them while grounding them first and foremost in the ultimate source of truth, God's Word. That's what Daniel did, and that's what we should do. Now, Daniel being as bright as he is by God's gift and mercy, is going to stand before the king. He's going to minister before not only this king, but others, and for a long time. And he's going to demonstrate again and again the courage to be holy, the courage to be faithful to the one true God. It takes courage to be holy in this fallen world, but it also takes wisdom and discernment to recognize where to draw the line. Where to say, I can't do that. And where to say, yeah, I can go with you on that. Above all, Daniel is able to do this because he knows that God is over all. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over all people. He's sovereign over all circumstances. And even when it appears like things are outside of God's control, He is governing and guiding all things. And it is that conviction that our God reigns that gives us courage to pursue holiness, even in the face of our enemies.